Michael. Hey, Diane. How are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about failure, Michael. Whoa. Okay. I'm not going to give you an update on my end then because I guess we're diving right into the deep end, as they say, and I won't get my normal warm up in. So I'm just, I, I'll just ask, what, what's up? Well, uh, f- first, thanks for going there. Um, I, I, two things, really. I mean, one thing is that it just seems to me that there are times in life where you're dealing with sort of the same hard thing over and over. You know, people often talk about deaths coming in threes. It, in my case, in, in a few different parts of my life right now, I'm grappling with failure. And so that's a lens I'm looking through a lot right now. And then second, and and coupled with that is a, a little ways back, you asked me after I shared that we had pivoted in one of our pilots, you asked me about that. And, and we talked briefly, and we kind of even celebrated that pivot, which is interesting, because pivoting is failure. And I've been thinking about that conversation ever since and and I was hoping we would dig back into it today. Well, as you know, that's the topic that I wanted to dig into today as well. And I want to step back and also be candid with the audience because Diane and I have been going back and forth around this episode, which that's something we often do as we sketch out what we're going to talk about. And I had wanted to follow up on all the conversations we've been having around how you innovate or do continuous improvement in schools. You know, we've talked about what is a pilot and how to set it up. We've talked about testing and learning. We've talked about getting the right team in place for the pilot. We've talked about how to choose the right pilots for your school, given your strategy. And the next question that I kept returning to as Diane and I were thinking about what's the right topic for this episode was, okay, so once the results from your round of tests are clear and you go into that checkpoint meeting and you see that your current pilot isn't working the way you hypothesized it would, what do you do? Like, how do you have the conversation to pivot with your team? And how do you redesign or design something new? What, what does that even look like? And so as Diane started to work through her thinking, well, I'll just say we're in for a treat because I think there's some really interesting insights here. And I'm, I'm excited to maybe excited is the wrong word, but I'm looking forward to sitting back a bit on this episode to ask questions and learn. And I hope everyone listening will do the same. So Diane, I'll come back in now with with you and where you just started on this topic of failure. Thanks, Michael. Ooh, it's emotional. Let me start there. It just pre- it presents such a dichotomy. And I'll, I'll start by saying, as you all know, I live in Silicon Valley and Honestly, if you're not careful living here, you will start to believe the mantras and literally billboards that we have here when you're driving around that tell you that failure is a great thing. There are so many tales of people who have, quote, failed forward and have gone from being a high school dropout to a billionaire or have had multiple companies that have flopped and then magically, you know, created a unicorn company. And you know, everywhere you turn, there are stories about, quote, failing and how it just makes it seem like there's only upside to it. And then, Michael, there's the reality. And I don't know about you, but in my experience, and, and I'm I'm fully in it right now in multiple places in my life, failure, it's embarrassing and it's scary. And it's something that 
I, I personally don't want to do or experience. And, and when I am experiencing it, I'm, I'm struggling to figure out and, and convince myself that this is somehow going to serve me in the future. And so calling back to those other stories, like it just doesn't feel like that's real or true in the moment. And at the same time, I'm not sure how to innovate without experiencing failure. And so I'm trying to figure out, as you know, I'm an innovator. That's what I do. That's what I like to do. That's what I believe in. And so I'm trying to figure out how to hold these two conflicting and, and ideas that are seem to be in such tension and the, the emotions that go with them and hold that all at the same time. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting I, because I come personally at this from a few directions. One is actually where you started, which is actually that venture capital investors, they like investing in individuals who have experienced a failure before and learned valuable lessons from it. And then I come at it from the personal standpoint. And a lot of the self-help books and podcasts that I periodically devour on the topic. And a lot of these uh, things I, I realized as I was listening to them, this was a few years ago, actually, I was realizing while I was listening to a bunch of these that I couldn't actually name any failures I had had. And so I stew on this topic all the time thinking, well, I must have had failures, right? And the answer is, of course I do. There are tons of failures that I've had, Diane. You know, books not accepted by publishers, columns not accepted by media outlets. More perniciously, I think, like things I've said or written that were done in poor taste or with poor knowledge and offended people or maybe misled people I didn't mean to. Or you go back to your school days, like law student government elections, tennis matches, burning out as a pianist. And I could, I mean, I could list a ton, right? And I guess in my head, while I was struggling to think of these things, it's because I've constantly reframed them after the fact. They don't feel good during the time, but after the fact, I try to reframe them as learnings and try to use them to help me be better. Or at least I've told myself or convinced myself of a narrative that maybe this failure, it's not about me, right? Like it's maybe the outcomes aren't something that I can control. You know, I can just control the process. I, I don't know what it is. But I think it's why I'm so drawn to this literature on testing and learning, because it moves you first to a place of humility and reality. Like, you can't know it all from the get-go. No one does. But then it also allows you to move away from sort of these spectacular crashes, if you will, from quote-unquote big transformational innovations and it moves you to this footing of fast failures that gets reframed as learning and stepping stones on a longer road to success. But at some level, Diane, I've also always gotten that failure in schools with students feels, well, really unacceptable at some level. Like it feels it, yucky. And it's something we hide from. Whereas in, say, those venture capital examples or even me on the tennis court, if a business goes belly up or I lose a match... There's, there's kind of no two ways about it, right? Like the result is clear. And I guess that's where I want to land is I think one reason people have gotten so excited about pivots in business is it's the opportunity to change the business and try something new before you say run out of money. But, you know, yes, pivots can sometimes be small tweaks, but more often than not, they're, they aren't simply a small change to what you're doing. They're really you now testing a fundamentally new hypothesis because the first one you had proved not to be true or not to be workable. 
Now, of course, this new thing you're testing, it's informed from what you've learned. But Diane, it's still a fundamentally new set of hypotheses. And that that's difficult. I'm so grateful that we have this space, Michael. I realized just, um, just starting to have a conversation with you, I'm feeling better. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing personally. I can imagine a lot of people don't think that you've ever failed at anything. And so <laughs> I appreciate that. Could be further from the truth. Um, and as you were talking, you know, and over the last couple of weeks, I- I'm reflecting on what you're saying about schools and failing in schools. And I- I'm realizing that some of the traits that I personally think define most summit educators and the, the, all the educators in the world that I know who are great in many ways, it's the traits that make us completely focused on the success of our students. And and in the case of Summit, from inception, our schools have always committed to 100% graduation and college readiness. And you know this, and, and most people know this. And before school starts every year, when we're getting ready for the year and reviewing our goals and our expectations, there is an inevitably an understandably, a person who who questions the possibility of 100% of students meeting these outcomes. And in those moments, we as a, as a community and a culture get, we get really concrete. And like, we pull out a list of students, and we ask ourselves, which student on this list, are we ready and willing to call right now, and them their families and say, you know what, we only have a 90% goal this year and 10% of the kids aren't going to be graduating and you're one of those. And as you might imagine, Michael, when, when we frame it that way and we ask ourselves that real question, no one is able or willing to make that call. And so what happens in that moment is all of our energy and focus goes into figuring out how 100% of our students will graduate and be college ready. And I think that's so important. And when I look back at my last 20 years, like this is what has enabled us to to hit that measure over and over and over again. And so the challenge becomes, how do you get these same people to give up or quote pivot on something they're testing and trying because it isn't working? Giving up isn't in the DNA of, of people who are mission driven. This feels different to me from most businesses where innovation theory really derives from, I don't know, it just seems so much, I hate to say it, but colder and and a little bit more, less high stakes. And maybe that's me, you know, biased educator, but I'm I'm just really curious about your take. Yeah, well, I mean, first I'll say, I think for the perspective of the entrepreneurs or innovators, venture capital firms, they assume failure to your point and don't realize the human cost of that. And there is a human cost of, of time and livelihoods and so forth. And so, you know, that's a separate topic perhaps, but I, I do think in any realm, there is that human piece of it. And I guess what I, you know, go back to what I said earlier in, in business compared to say public schools, th- there are some big differences, right? We, let's start with one. In business, there are certain forcing functions and and even then you know to be clear it's still hard to embrace this notion that we're just going to have to change everything to get the results we want but at some fundamental level businesses run out of money and they they just can't keep going 
in public education anyway, we don't really ever run out of money and rarely do traditional public schools have to close, at least in this country. Now, this is obviously different in schools of choice, if you will, right? Independent schools for sure, but also public charter schools like the ones you operate. And of course, there are some public school you know, district closures, places where consolidation is happening, or I'm thinking of Washington, D.C. a few years ago, for example. But on the whole, if we're being honest, like this is such a small number compared to the number of businesses where churn is frankly the name of the game. I mean, just think about the restaurants that go in and out of business in your local community over a five-year period. And then I think there's another piece here, which is that businesses for better or worse, they tend to be clearer about who their customer is and they listen to what they want. That doesn't mean they always serve that customer well, but in education, it's much murkier and cloudier, I think. There's, of course, a constant debate about whether schools have even customers to begin with, and if you say that they do, then there's a question of, well, who is your customer? And you have all these conversations around stakeholders and the like, but customer is often a dirty word in education. And perhaps unsurprisingly as a result, I I think it's actually fair to say that many schools are pretty bad at listening to the families that they serve as a result. And, And as you know, I was struck by this over and over again during COVID, and it's something you and I have discussed quite a bit. But families had legitimately very different sets of needs. You know, some needed food and schools to be open and more childcare and technology and the like. And other families just didn't. The the time at home was a welcome respite, and they had what they needed. And I think it's, you know, districts struggled to serve either, I think, it's fair to say, because at some level they couldn't think about how to serve different constituencies within their district that might have different priorities and be sitting in vastly different circumstances and need, frankly, tailored and unique solutions to best serve them rather than a blanket one-size-fits-all set of offerings. Or I see it right now in my local school district as they try to change bell times for different schools and assume it's a one-size-fits-all solution and that all families should just fall in line with what they say, forget the fact that like families have legitimately different working schedules. Or our friend John Bailey, who we've had on the podcast a few times recently, I had, I think, a very stunning piece in the 74 where he suggested that the real reason perhaps that student performance slid so much wasn't actually traceable necessarily to whether a school district or state was open in person or not, but instead whether there was a live learning option for a child when they had to stay at home in quarantine, and that most schools just hadn't thought about what kids and families would need when they stayed at home. But I think this is all kind of reflective of a lack of thinking about the job to be done in in my parlance, of how different families and children sit in very different circumstances, needing to make progress in different ways at different times, Diane. Michael, that is all really compelling to to me. Um, And I'm thinking just sitting in the seat of someone who has been in schools and leads schools for so long about this idea. I mean, I I imagine at first a few people will have a a little bit of a visceral reaction to the idea that we don't listen to our families and our students. Because I think if you're in schools, you feel like you're listening all day long to families and students. But there's a difference between like, listening and then hearing what they're saying and then acting on it. And so I think that's where you're actually going here, which is, and I just think about, you know, I think we're probably, um, even in our schools, you know, we regularly survey families and, and students and 
figuring out how to take all of that feedback and input and incorporate it back into the model. And very importantly, what you touched on to meet the individual needs of so many different people in a system is extraordinarily challenging. And and as parents and families, I'm not sure we feel heard, you know, um, even if the school is is thinks that it's trying to do that. And so I think that all resonates with me. The other thing that's coming up for me is, you know, one of the things I think we do in schools very often is, is something you've alluded to throughout, which is we sort of narrate and explain after the fact what we learned from something. And we don't do what we would call is validated learning. And so I, I think this idea of validated learning has been so profound for us because when you do it, when you're really disciplined about actually making a hypothesis and saying, if we do this, we think this will happen. And then if it does happen or it doesn't happen, you actually know that what you thought was going to make it happen is true or not. That process is seems to be really absent and really critical and an important part of what we need to do in schools because otherwise we're just explaining away over and over and over again what's already happened. And I don't, I don't think that moves us forward. It's interesting, Diane. And I think it gets to what I want to ask you, which is that in, in some ways we're sort of explaining why education perhaps struggles to try things out, learn from the tests, and then make changes. But just because we're explaining it, I don't think means we're excusing it. So I'm curious how we move forward from sort of this reality that's different from the business contexts and some of these other contexts we've talked about to doing this sort of validated learning and then yes, pivoting that you're talking about. Yeah. I'm so, I'm so glad we're going this direction because this is who, who I like to be, who you like to be, who we like to be, which is, is solutions oriented. And so I've been thinking a lot about like, all right, if this is our natural sort of DNA to not really be innovators, but we want to innovate, how do we actually go about that? And so I have, I have some thoughts about things that we can do in schools. And so I thought we could just talk through them. The first one being, I think, start small. I think one of the things we do in schools is we like pick off this big, giant, huge initiative, you know, an entire new math curriculum or a whole new way of doing things. And one of the things I was thinking about is like some of the places we've been successful in building the the skills and the and practicing these innovative approaches is in smaller places that feel less high stakes. And so, for example, what kicked this all off a few weeks ago is the pilot we're doing around how we actually meet the leaders of our organizations meet and how we share information and collaborate. And it feels to me like that's a really good example of starting in a place that's not right affecting kids. It's a place where it's important how we meet. And as we talked about, those are expensive meetings, but it's maybe less, quite frankly, emotional, you know, like it's a meeting. And so people are probably less tied to it. If it's not working, it's probably easier to move away and do something different. And so that's my first idea is like, start small, practice the behaviors that we've been talking about on something that feels less high stakes. So you can actually build the muscle and the skill around doing this work. I think the next thing that goes along with that then is, is to 
test real hypotheses. And so again, like we've talked about this a few times now, Michael, but you really, really have to start by saying, if we do this, then we think this will happen. And then you have to do it. And, and of course, the next piece is you've got to measure it. And then you've got to come back at a set date. You've got to look at that data that you've measured to see if what you expected happen to happen will happen or did happen. And if you set that date and that time frame, then you have a moment where it's defined and decided that you're going to actually make this choice about pivoting or persevering. And I think just knowing that that's coming um, and making a time for it is a big move here. I think if you don't do that, I suspect people will avoid it and they, they don't want to have to be the person who calls the meeting that says, oh, this isn't working. And so it will just continue to, to roll forward and continue to go as it is in the absence of sort of that discipline around calling a meeting, deciding what you're going to do, and knowing that it's going to happen on that day one way or the other. And, and, and then I just think in that meeting, having really good data and multiple perspectives is really important. And then finally, I think leaving space for the emotion and the human part of this and, and being able to acknowledge that, that it feels really hard to fail and um, grappling with those emotions kind of as we are today um, so that you can hold them at the same time you're making a good decision about what to do next. So let me ask you this last question as we wrap up here, which is, you know, when you, and I don't like this word, I guess, so I'm still having this aversion, even though we've been talking about it, but when you failed in your pilot, if you will, around flattening the org structure and the expensive, as you were talking about, weekly stand-up meeting that you were trying with your leadership team, what did you do next? Like, how did you pick up the pieces and not just say, okay, that didn't work, but uh, we're done. Like, you still had this challenge, right, of making sure that information was more uh, symmetrical across the organization and flattening the leadership and so forth. So like, how did you go build something to go test next? Because it's, it's not exactly easy. Maybe it's fun to be generative again, but it's not exactly easy to just come up with a new idea and a new set of hypotheses. And so I'm curious, like, what you all did? Was it in that meeting itself? Did you have like a period of reflection and create something new? Like, how do you create that next idea and those next set of hypotheses that you're going to go test if you agree you're not just shelving the pilot completely? This is like the most important question and moment, I think. And I think the answer is something that we talk about all the time. And in the moment, I don't think it's obvious. And I don't think what most people do. What we ended up doing was going back all the way back to what is the purpose of us meeting? Literally, like, why, why does this group meet? Should this group even meet? What are we trying to accomplish in, in these meetings? And we, we had stated those objectives with our previous hypothesis, and then we weren't hitting them, which is what the data was showing us. So going back to the original purpose was key because I think what a lot of people do in that moment, and I saw it in our team, the, the natural instinct is to take what you've been doing and just like tweak it, 
right? So instead of going back to the purpose, people just try to just evolve the thing that you've been doing without anchoring it in, no, what were you really trying to accomplish? So instead of asking that question, people will just be like, well, the meeting, you know, was too short or too long or on the right, wrong day. And so let's just tweak the thing we were doing versus like really asking ourselves, no, what will, what do we believe will get us to meet that purpose that we originally set out? And that's what we ultimately did, Michael. But honestly, we had to give ourselves three meetings for that conversation. I think we all wanted it to be done in the one meeting. Like we came together, we decided that we needed to pivot. And then everyone thought, oh, great, we've got 20 minutes left. Let's think of the next thing. No chance. And so we really tried to come back the next week and do it. We didn't finish it. So we came back another week to do that, um, to, to get the next hypothesis. And I think just giving ourselves that space and time and grounding in the purpose was really key. Uh, it's an incredibly helpful place, I think, to leave it, which is r- really what just happens. You almost go back into that brainstorm process, first principles and that time and space. I think you're right. Incredibly important. Give you both individual time to generate ideas, but then as a group to coalesce around something that you're going to commit to and give a shot at and test and learn again. And so I think we'll leave it there in, in a very raw conversation, but I think a very insightful one. And uh, I would love to hear from listeners after this one what they think. But before we leave completely, let's switch tacks, uh, Diane. And I'm just curious what you're reading or listening or, or watching right now. Yeah, well, um, that brings um, warmth to my heart and a smile because um, over the holidays, one of the best parts of the holidays for me was reading the book Thinking in Systems, a Primer by Danella H. Meadows. And the best part of reading it was getting to discuss it with my son and one of his classmates who was staying with us over the holidays. And as you know, and pretty much anyone who listens to us probably has figured out, I, I love systems. Well, at, a, at least education and school systems. I love them. I'm a nerd and a geek about them. And this book was just so incredibly clear. And it really advanced my thinking about systems. I, I, I found it to be invaluable. And what a joy to be in a learning community and talking about a book with um, some really inspiring young people. So that, that's what's on my list for this week. How about you, Michael? Well, I'm going to add that to mine, but uh, I'm midway through a bunch of books right now, so I feel like I'm not <laughs> able to say much. But the one that I did finish was a forthcoming book on wellness for educators uh, that I read in advance. And I'll just say as we leave this conversation, the care of educators, the self-care, uh, is an incredibly important topic, not just in the current circumstances, but but also because it helps prepare educators to be at their best for our kids. And I I think it's an incredibly important one. The book did a lot on the importance of the topic, the evidence for it, uh, but also the importance of the systems aligning around this, not just an individual, like putting it on them. Uh, But there was also a lot on the practices that can help around yoga and meditation and much more. And I've incorporated a few of the practices myself in my own daily routine, which has been fun. And with that, we'll leave it there and just thank you all for joining us once again on Class Disrupted. Mm